for joining us. I'm your host, Simon Dudley, Chief Contrarian for Accession Events. To learn more and for information about the book and other resources, please go to accessionevents.com. Here's the second part of my conversation with Phil at home. I do hope you enjoy this as well as the other parts. In this part of the conversation, we discuss the UC market, the power of Intel processors, the future of desktop and room-based video conferencing, and a whole bunch of other things as well. I do hope you enjoy it. It was a crazily interesting conversation. Which actually brings up an interesting point. I bumped into you, I think for the physically, we'd obviously spoken a lot on the phone doing UC strategies things, but I think the first time I physically bumped into you, or at least for a while, was at Enterprise Connect, and we talked about the cost of servers and AWS and how the cost per telephone or per, per user in a UC world hadn't changed for a long time. It was about, I, see, yeah. I forget what it was, $25 a month per user? Yeah, so, so it's actually interesting. I, I did a session on this at, at Enterprise Connect and had, had as a reactor panel, RingCentral 8x8, AT&T, Vonage Business, and Microsoft. And basically, um, the, the context I put up was the telephony systems of today that are offered in the cloud are priced exactly the same as a premise-based system. So the argument is, if you look at the, at the price of a telephone, putting a business class telephone on a desk, and you add up the initial purchase price, um, support price, um, upgraded hardware, upgraded software, maintenance and maintenance support, all those things all in. And I've actually got a model that tracks it by year over the 20-year lifespan of from when you buy a system, when you change vendors. Turns out you go through all that math, it comes out somewhere between $16 and $19 a month. Right. So that's the cost of it. So I used to use $18 as the cost of a business platform. Now, if you're a really big organization, maybe a little bit cheaper. If you've got, you know, just analog phones and hospitality, it may be a little bit cheaper. But, you know, it's that kind of number. When you say a little bit cheaper, are you talking half that or like? No, more like, more like $10, $12 a month, $10, okay. $13 okay. a month. You know, if you look at a hotel, the hotel, a hotel that's got a bunch of phones and rooms, you know, they bought very inexpensive analog phones. There's no ads, moves, and changes because nothing moves around. Um, they may not be buying a lot of upgrades, so you may get that cost point down significantly. But typical business, $18 a month. Um, you add on PSTN access, let's say 7 bucks a month because it's highly variable. That's about $25 a month. If you look at the price points for the 8x8s, the Ring Centrals, the Vonage businesses, they're all about $25 a month. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, my argument is that if you look at cloud, cloud is not a technology. Cloud is a business model. And I'm a big believer in a guy named Timothy Chow. He wrote a book called The Seven Clear Models of, of Cloud Computing. And he actually argues that, you know, model one is buy software, run it on servers you own, run, run and managed by your own employees. Model seven is the alternative monetization model of Google, where Google gives us trinkets, we give them information, they sell the information and make lots of money. Model six is software as a service. Um, so what he talks about is these models, but the real important point, this was my epiphany when I first talked to, to Timothy Chow and spent time with him. He said, between model three and model five, model six, there's a fundamental transformation. And it's all about standardization, specialization, and repetition. So in other words, 
the application, the thing that you're getting from the cloud gets standardized. You don't get to customize it anymore. It's pretty standardized. People specialize in delivering something, but then more importantly, through volume, they repeat it over and over again. And with repetition, you get better at it. So he has some examples. He says, you know, why is Michael Phelps, doesn't Michael Phelps run the 100-yard dash? Because he chose to standardize on swimming, which is a standardized activity, specialized in that, and he did that activity repeatedly until he got really, really good at it. And his, therefore, his performance level. Um, and talks, he talks about other areas, you know, where this, if you look in the economy, uh, my personal epiphany when I, I first started talking was I, I realized that cloud is the industrial revolution of information. Yes, it We're is. seeing exactly the same thing happen today in information that happened. You know, 1750, you wanted hinges for your outhouse. You went down to the local blacksmith and it took two hours to make hinges. By 1850, the hinges were made in the Stanley Works in Connecticut, and the labor content was maybe five minutes. Now, what happened, the technology that enabled that was the railroad that lets you have the distribution of goods from where they were manufactured or where they received. Go into Home Depot today and think about how much labor there is in those hinges. But also, go into Home Depot, go to the front desk, to the customer order desk, and say, no, I want a 3 and 364-inch hinge. Not a 3-inch hinge or a 4-inch hinge. I want a three, 364-inch hinge. Your ability to buy that is zero because it's become totally standardized. Yes. Uh, my argument is that's what's happening in information processing. The Internet is the railroad. And basically, cloud or factories where we're producing these, call them products, though they're soft, you know, they're, but they're going to get distributed. So if you look at that, what Timothy Chow argues is that the price drops dramatically because of standardization, specialization, or repetition. So look at CRM. CRM, in 2004, you went to buy CRM. You bought it from Siebel. Um, that was part of Oracle. You deployed it. It was probably seven dollars to $10,000 for a CRM seat. Oh, but it also never worked. It was a well, two-year installation. I mean, it was, <laughs> that, oh, that's true. Because it didn't work. Because but, but, everyone did it once. Right. That's exactly. the problem. Exactly. And, and they were all custom. And they were, and now, basically, you buy a product that is standardized. Now, you can there are ways you can optimize it, but it's highly standardized from Salesforce. And it's less than $1,000 a year. So, And here's an interesting thing about Salesforce. Salesforce realized this, that when they first – effectively, Salesforce can be considered a programming language, really. I mean, you can do whatever you want with it. But the problem is, is that most companies don't really understand their own business model well enough. So when they first put in a CRM, like they did with Seabor, they initially did with Salesforce, they would try and customize it. Now, what happens is that a lot of organizations are like, you know what, Salesforce knows more about business process <laughs> than we do. We'll adjust our business process to fit the tool. That works better. Because, yeah, absolutely. Like you would say, right, I have a standard, whatever a door is in America. It's the same everywhere in the world otherwise, other than Japan. They're all the same, exactly the same. 600 millimeters is the width of a door, I think it is, or, or, a, or a shelf within a kitchen, and everything fits around that system. Right. And I think, you know, I think what's interesting is you're exactly hitting the point of, you know, it becomes standardized and you learn to use it. This is, by the way, what people who implemented Oracle and, you know, for their general purpose systems, what people found really quickly was, you don't need to customize them, follow their processes, and you probably will improve your processes overall. So, so the argument out of this is 
you know, phone systems today, you know, if you go back 30 years when you had a Centrex line, it was $20 a month plus, plus your, you know, long distance charges. Um, we're now $25 a month, including North American unlimited access. Though there's always an asterisk on that, that if you go over a certain level, they have the right to throw you out of the program. <laughs> um, because there's an assumption you really won't use thousands and thousands of minutes. But, and my argument was that I think the telephony portion of this is going to drop. And by the way, there are some really good indicators that's already happening. I mean, people like Salesforce, now Dialpad, were $15 a month. Um, in Internet 2, the Internet 2 Consortium, which is the university's Internet 2, um, they went out for a bid for telephony services delivered over that network from the cloud. And it was bid at about seven and a half dollars per month by Astra, which is now part of Mitel. Um, I actually talked to a couple of my consulting friends, and they're actually seeing bids now that are under ten dollars a month for telephony services. So, you know, I think what we're seeing, and, and by the way, you know, one of the other ones, if you look at Microsoft, I mean, Microsoft's bundle pricing is really interesting. So, you know, they charge about twenty dollars for an E3 bundle that includes Skype for business, but no PSTN calling or telephony features or audio conferencing. Um, those functions together are about $24. If you add $24 on, it's $12 for the PSTN, unlimited North American PSTN dialing, $8 for the features, and $4 for unlimited conferencing. So if you look at it, though, what's interesting is for $47, you get those things plus a whole bunch of other applications in the E5. And if you kind of go through the discounting and you look at it, what you realize real quickly is that the PSTN feature set is $8, and it's getting discounted probably by 10 to 20%. So in the Skype, in the Office 365 Skype for Business world, the PSTN feature set is only about is only about six or six dollars. Then you've got the twelve dollars of the PSTN access, which, quite frankly, I think will come down and also will be discounted. So you begin to see that their numbers are actually coming down pretty fast in that world as well. That's kind of interesting for someone like Microsoft to do because they can bundle everything else: Office, Exchange, all the Absolutely. other stuff. Absolutely. But if I'm, I don't know, and I've just picked these people at random. But if I'm eight by eight or Ring Central or Vonage. I can't offer those other things as well. So what do they do? How's their business model affected? Well, the, the biggest challenge, I think, if you look at 8 by 8 and Ring Central um, specifically, um, is they spend about 60% of their revenue on customer acquisition. Um, it's a highly front-end loaded customer acquisition model, right? Because I acquire a customer today, they pay by the month. My break-even on the customer acquisition is out at about eight to 12 months. Yeah, that's standard for SaaS. Is it, yeah. for SaaS exactly. So, you know, I think the, the question that's really interesting is you can deliver the services for dramatically less than a $25 price point and still have very good margins. The challenge is the customer acquisition. And I think that's going to be the biggest, I mean, the biggest question I think going forward in this industry is customer acquisition. How do you do cost-effective customer acquisition? By the way, is to some extent um, the big challenge that somebody like a Microsoft brings, which is, is, by the way, no different than what Cisco did with voice over IP, right? So Cisco really started in 2003, 2002, really selling voice over IP. Yeah. They had this great adjacency 
that they own 70% of the data networks. So it became really easy to go talk to those data customers about voice over IP. And obviously, because it was voice over the data network, it was just logical discussion. Well, it was actually even more effective than that, because what it did was allow the IT departments in every major corporate in the world go, oh, good, we can take over the telecoms department. <laughs> yes, that was, that was the, the bonus nice planning activity. Yes. Nice political, but it, it, you know, the IT guy goes, oh, oh, good, I own telecoms now. And the telecoms manager is suddenly out on his ear. And I remember meeting many telecoms managers in 2002, 2003, and before. So you do know that you're done once it all goes IP. And they're like, oh, no, uh, the, the, uh, the PC world or the computer world can never understand the five nines reliability we need. And we're like, oh, all right. And three years later, they were all gone. Yep. Well, and, and, and the same thing is happening to some extent now. You know, if you think about Microsoft's relationship, because of, you know, they provide – 85% of the world with personal productivity tools. So they have this natural relationship. And by the way, that's even more significant if you look at Office 365. So, you know, it's, it's a, I think there are very interesting questions about, um, you know, how do you think about this? One of the things uh, we did, um, Brent Kelly and I did a session at Enterprise Connect that the fourth year I've done a Microsoft versus Cisco session. And this year we chose to focus 100% on the cloud offers. So it was a real contrast of Skype for Business delivered as part of Office 365 with Spark from Cisco. And, you know, Spark is still fairly new, but you can still talk through where it is and where it's going. And it was a, it's a very interesting perspective. And what we did is we actually looked at the stack and said the stack is not just the collaboration stack. You've got at the bottom, you've got these personal productivity tools, the things like the personal productivity apps, you know, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, You've got your personal productivity management. You've got document management. Then on top of it, you've got the collaboration tools, you know, video, you know, the video web conferencing, all those things. And then on top of that, you've got the PSTN access, the voice features and PSTN. And so you kind of have the stack now that includes all those things. Plus at the side, it's got, you know, the APIs. How do you interface to it to do things with it? And what's really interesting is I think companies are going to start thinking about buying that stack, not pieces of the stack. Because you got to think about how does that whole stack work together? Because right now, if you think about it, a lot of companies have, you know, they have one product for PSTN access, i.e. the telephone. They have another product for collaboration. And they have yet another product for personal productivity and document management. Yeah. And the reality is to do all this work effectively, those things really need to be combined to make sense. Yes, but there's that I agree with you, but there's that there's that interesting angle here that you say right, it's all going down to monolithic. Now, one monolithic solution that the CIO will choose. Now, I've been in industry quite a while and I remember when I first started, everyone told me that the future of office productivity was WordPerfect 4.2 on a compact 286E with a HP LaserJet 2. And it was right until the point where it wasn't. And someone came along and redefined what success in that market looks like. One of the problems, I think, with your argument, I do agree with, by the way, which is annoying. It's much more fun if we disagree. But I agree with you that there's that monolith. It's all running towards a, a... the technology is all based, based around solving someone's business problem, and I think that starts with something like Office 365. However, there's a fly in this ointment. If I'm the IT manager of a company of 
a thousand people. And I decide, right, that's the monolithic answer. We will go and do that. What is the problem with that now? The two problems are, one, users are much less likely to just uh, roll over and do what the IT department ever told them to. And secondly, and perhaps even more interestingly, they're empowered. I read recently, uh, Gartner stated that 37% of the IT budget spent in companies today is spent by the CMO. Yes, absolutely. Now, if that's the case, then doing this monolithic, the answer is all pick your poison, Cisco or Microsoft, is much less likely to come into a, you know, into a certain, into one bucket. The, the CMO may decide that, well, actually, our workplace productivity tool is Salesforce for us. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is the interesting question is, you know, is there a corporate overview? What's the, corp- the corporate level umbrella? And then, do work teams, I mean, one of the, the clear opportunities, and if you look at people like Slack, for example, um, you know, the clear opportunity there is appeal to appeal to groups, you know, to work groups within the organization that yes. use these tools because they make us more effective. And it's a very interesting question about, uh, you know, kind of have the traditional players there, and then you have these new tools. If you look at Salesforce, the, the adoption model for Salesforce was a very interesting adoption model. Salesforce never got sold to the enterprise. The way Salesforce got adopted was Bob, the sales manager, somebody told him somehow he found out about Salesforce. He started using it. And all of a sudden, his team was making their quota for the year. And all of his friends, all the other sales managers said, Bob, what are you doing? How are you making your quota? He says, well, I'm getting this thing offline where I buy it for each of my guys and it costs me 60 bucks a month. It's called Salesforce. And it lets me manage everybody. And boy, they're making their, their quotas and I'm able to see what they're doing. And all of a sudden, every and then pretty soon the company said, well, gee, nobody's using that CRM platform we bought and tried to get them to use. They're all using this. Maybe we should make that a standard. Yeah, in fact, I would argue that it's mainly marketing managers who did it rather than sales because then they use that as a hammer to bash the eyes from the sockets of the sales department. Uh, of the sales department, yeah. But, but I guess a perfect example of that was my one of my last employers. They spent their IT budget was like a million dollars a year, but their sales force budget, which was run by the CMO, was three million dollars a year. Absolutely, and that, and to some extent, that's what Gartner. Kartner kind of has there is that in that in that CMO's budget, there's Salesforce. Many many times, there's a lot of things that are relative to the website, but yeah. then there are also things like social social all the, all the email marketing tools and all yep. the reporting and all that. Now, so that's going to be. I mean, good. It, it would be so boring if we just said, yeah, in three years from now, IT will be solved. It's it not be. That's the likely scenario. I mean, I would argue that IT managers are increasingly becoming the plumbers. I mean, any IT managers, apologies now uh, for saying that, but it's a, it seems to me that a lot of the time they're involved in making certain that the modern equivalent of electricity gets to the tools that are on the desk of the user and what tools the user chooses to use are in, either picked by them off a list or entirely of their own device. Yeah, and I, I think that all works until you start hitting into a set of considerations of how well vetted those things are. So, you know, if you have PCI considerations or you have HIPAA considerations. Yeah, I agree. In a compliance busy world, that's hard to manage. You couldn't do that in a bank. You can't just turn around and say, 
what the hell, bring anything you want. And some guy turns up with a Commodore 64. That's that's not going to happen. Right. But in, you know, you got to remember, a lot of people get bent around the axle on the fortune. What about big hospital groups and large financial institutions? Well, that's true. But the majority of people... <laughs> The vast majority of people don't work for companies of that size. And that's true. And I think that that's the interesting question is, you know, there's going to be a huge amount of innovation. We've seen a lot of innovation. You know, if you kind of think about it, there's been a lot of innovation that's happened over the last three years in this industry. Some of it has been absorbed into companies, has been acquired. Some of it's out there and kind of fighting through. But, I, you know, I think there's a very interesting perspective about, you know, does something like a Slack get larger adoption? I, I yeah. still kind of waiting to see, you know, it's interesting. I talk to a lot of the the end user customers I interact with and I ask them what they're using and what's being used in their organization. And, and it very much varies on the organization. You just don't see a lot of those tools in a lot of places. Um, I think it's partly because it's early. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's another argument that says that, we're in a world that's transforming so fast that one of the things I'm personally conscious of is that the reseller community and distribution and even the manufacturers aren't keeping up with the new uh, business models for this stuff. I mean, the vast majority of resellers know the future is the cloud, but don't have a business model to get them there. And that I think holds them back and the market. Well, well, customer wants to go and reseller wants to go and tell a customer about a cloud solution. He can't work out how to make, make money sell it. Well, that's and that's the problem with the cloud is that that the, I mean, you, you got to stop and think about again. Go back to the analogy. It's always interesting to use analogies, but the analogy of the blacksmith, right? So you're a blacksmith. The blacksmith is analogous to a var, right? He's taking basically a set of raw products that are coming to him. He's transforming them into a custom implementation for each customer. Um, that's really analogous to what VARs do today. Um, you know, all of a sudden, the customization and building of that stuff goes to a factory, i.e. the cloud. The blacksmith basically had two choices. Choice one is, I continue to be a blacksmith in a world where fewer and fewer things require blacksmiths. Um, blacksmiths today, by the way, seem, if you look at a blacksmith today, they seem to be almost totally, um, their total business process today is putting horseshoes on horses. Um, that seems to be what's left of being a blacksmith. There's a little bit of metalworking. But it's all, everything they do is bespoke. Right. It's very bespoke and and it's very limited, the percentage. So, so my whole point is the smart blacksmith opened the hardware store. And sold products in the hardware store. And he no longer, the skill set and the things that he built up and, and a lot of the labor time that he did building stuff goes away and he becomes a different kind of. So, you know, this is the challenge. If you look, and we, we did this at the UC Summit. I know you were getting married, so you missed it. Yes, yeah, sorry. Um, Busy. You know, it's, it's okay. <laughs> you know, there are a few things that are acceptable. Birth of a child. I, well, getting married is kind of marginal, but birth of a child, you know. <laughs> but, okay. but anyway, you know, we did a session there and actually talked about for the channel. And, and the reality is channels have some big challenges coming. Because if you're a channel today and you look at what's coming in the cloud, your business model of today probably is not the same business model for a cloud. Um, and you know, the choices you have, you can ignore it and assume it won't happen until you can either retire or sell your business. 
But unfortunately, your business value probably decreases as the cloud comes on if you don't do anything. Oh, it does, yes, undoubtedly. And the second option is you can decide to become a cloud vendor. The problem is if you're a reseller doing a $20 million a year business and you go back and look again, the $200, I mean, it's a very interesting perspective of that $200 for a phone, $100 typically goes to the channel and $100 goes to the vendor. So if you've got a $20 million business, you can go through the math real quickly and figure out how many endpoints you're, you're managing. The problem is today to be cloud cost effective, you've got to be at about a half a million subscribers. So that's the, the level. If you look at people like 8x8, Ring Central, Vonage Business, they're at that, they're at that over 500,000 up to a million um, subscribers. Um, you know, and you look at people like, like Cisco with HCS, they have 2.7 million subscribers, but it's through a whole bunch of partners that actually are delivering Hux as a service. So it's kind of, a, again, a fragmented model. What's interesting is if you project forward, those numbers grow pretty rapidly because if cloud adoption is increasing 20 to 30% per year, I mean, what that says is that, you know, if you go forward two or three years, that's going to become 2 million. So, and, and the, the thing that's interesting, if you make the assumption that in say five years, let's assume in North America that 30 or 40% of communications is now delivered from the cloud. There are 140 million communication seats in North America. 40% of 140 million is up, you know, about 55 million, 50 to 60 million. Let's take 60. Let's take 50. Let's use that as a number. If there are 50 million cloud seats and you want to have a 20% market share, you have to have 10 million subscribers. Because the, the old Jack Welsh thing, if you got to be at 20% or you get out because you can't, you can't win. So the question that's very interesting about cloud is their room in cloud for a lot of players that have you know, 50,000 or 100,000 subscribers? Or do they just get pushed out of the market by... Well, I think the consolidation that we're probably about to see in this industry, I mean, it's on the cards. I've never seen Enterprise Connect more full of different people offering you solutions. And I think that's true in the reseller community as well as the, as well as the manufacturer one. You know, it, it's interesting. I did some work recently. I did a talk in LA about moving a box-based business model to a cloud-based business model for the reseller community. Yep. And it was fascinating to me how few people, they all agreed. I spoke to about 500 resellers there and they all said, you're right, we need to do this. And I said, well, what's your plan? And probably a third of the room said to me quietly, we're going to ignore it and hope it goes away. Right. And that's what I'm saying. And that's really a scary business thought process. And, well, and the, that's not a business. That's a going out of business plan. That's oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the problem is reselling a cloud solution. You're no longer a value added reseller in the same context it was in the past. Well, you are if you I, I would argue. And this is where this is where it's an interesting angle because I've spoken to distribution, too. And some distribution people have said to me, well, we're kind of done in the cloud world. Who needs a warehouse? It's like, no, 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 no. You've no, no, you, you have missed the point. What, I don't believe any one manufacturer will have the entire solution. They've never had it in the past. I very much doubt it will have it in the future. So a reseller should be, for want of a better turn of phrase, a curator. An aggregator. An okay. aggregator who, who yeah. collects bits of solutions from multiple different manufacturers and packs them all together and supplies them, not just the one customer, but their entire supply chain so that they're useful 
to a whole bunch of customers. The other advantage of that is as the IT department becomes more fragmented or begins to dissolve because the business unit taking over their own you know, facilities, then you have the opportunity as a supplier to be the supplier not of a box, not even of a cloud solution, but as a business process answer. And that means that the resellers and distribution have got a very interesting play there. But there is that old phrase that says there's an old Chinese proverb that goes, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is right now. And I think a lot of these people are, I'm waiting, because what they do is they play with cloud for a bit. The resellers and the distribution people play with it, go, my God, I'm losing money, like hand over fist over this, right. and run backwards. But no, no, the minefield is going to take you a year to two to get through right? for your initial investment to get through it. But every time you run at it and then you get scared and you let, you know, your legs get blown off and then you have to run back again. I don't know if you run back without any legs. It depends how many legs you start with. And you run back to the beginning. Then you have to do it again later. Right. And a lot of these guys are, are, not, are either at the edge of the minefield and terrified or are halfway and running in the wrong direction. And I think that people need to fix that. That's important. Well, and I, I think you're, you, it's an interesting point. I mean, the, the whole two-tiered, you know, three-tiered distribution model, right? Vendor, distribution, VAR, end consumer. You know, in the cloud model, do you need those layers? Do those layers begin to essentially contract? Well, I mean, I think the, that's, the, that, that's a good argument, right? I would, most people's argument is, oh, we don't need distribution anymore. But actually, I think I would argue against that. If distribution does more than simply, we got the best price for the product, you can pick it up on Tuesday, right? If that's, if there are, if they're just a distribution company, then there is no need for them. Right. But in a cloud world, your, your local reseller is not going to be able to be an expert on, a curator of a whole bunch of different solutions, right? There's no scale in it. Distribution, however, can sit there, and this is in theory what all distribution is meant to do anyway, is we've got 10 lines, all of which complement each other, which come up with a better overall solution for a client. Why wouldn't they be able to do the same thing, but actually in a more integrated form for the cloud world? Now, some manufacturers are saying, no, we're going to sell direct. But most of the manufacturers I see who are moving to a or have moved to a direct model have suffered as a result. I don't think it's the right answer. No, I, and I think that's the challenge. But then, of course, the challenge becomes if the, if the distribution turns into an a aggregator, curator, then what is the value and what's the compensation model on that for the VAR at the oh, next yeah. level down? And so it's a know, get rich slowly model. It's uh, you making 15%, we do everything, you simply, you know, you're making money. I think you can make money as a reseller but you're making money in a much more boring, but, linear, slower way. But here's the, interesting, here's the interesting point about that is that at a 15% of revenue, if companies like Ring Central 8x8 were sending 60% of revenue today on customer acquisition, if you only get 15% of revenue and you have similar customer acquisition costs, it's, it's I mean, I, my argument actually is I think that where we're going to end up is that the vendors to a great extent are probably going to compensate the channel and, and the channel may be both distribution and bars who become more agents, quite frankly. Yes, agents. Um, 
oh, they I... they are going to compensate them based on customer acquisition costs. And then there's an ex. I think there's going to be more and more of an expectation that you make your revenue off of value-added services that you provide on top of the cloud. Yeah, I think, well, there's two angles, two responses to that. Firstly, I, th- I do agree with the latter part of that, although it's hard to see what those services might be that keep a whole reseller alive. <laughs> on, on the first half of that sentence, you know, you say the customer acquisition, one of the points of a reseller is that they've already got Customer, customer relationships. Sell to. I mean, that is if you if you're a reseller without any customer relationships, well, what are you? An invoicing right. machine for somebody else? You're not really a reseller. So if you've got if you're a reseller, and you've got ten thousand customers, and you sold them X manufacturers hardware boxes for the last twenty five years, you're a perfect client for the cloud manufacturer who wants to go in and replace all of those. Yeah, no, it, it should be much lower then. Right. Theoretically. The downside to that for those channels, which is, is a very interesting, going back to, you know, our, our hypothetical $20, $20 million channel. Um, if you go through the math and look at the $20 million channel and assume, you know, $150,000 to $200,000 per employee, you got 100 to 130 employees, you figure, you know, you got salespeople that are carrying a two, $2 million bag, you got 10 of them. Maybe a few more. You've got a few SEs, uh, yeah. you know, six or seven. You got a few sales management. You got a few marketing people, few accounting people, few you know order entry people. You're hard pressed to get past thirty to forty people in the in the front office, uh, front office, back office. The the support organization is seventy percent of your headcount, and that's the interesting organization. Is how much is that organization changed by the cloud? Because a lot of what they do doesn't happen now with the cloud. Yeah, um, I'm afraid it's not looking very good for that department. Right. I mean, well, it, it, perhaps at least as interesting is that, I mean, that is, that's a really good way of thinking of it. You have to radically change the business. But here's the really difficult bit. You can't close the business on Friday as a box selling business and say, right, Monday we sell cloud. Whatever. That's it. No, I mean, you know, yeah, it's the it's the turning the ship into a helicopter. That it's it, that's not hard. Trans what it is, but it's not really hard. The really hard bit is to transition from one to the other right. without leaving an awful lot of the other bit behind. Right. Well, it's, it's it, the question is, you know, having the customers transition with you, maintaining the relationship. That's a challenge. But you know, I think the bigger challenge we have right now is my gut feel, and I don't have a lot of data to back this up, is that the majority of resellers that have taken on a cloud product have it in their portfolio as an answer if the customer asks for it. <laughs> they actually don't sell it because, again... They supply you know, to demand. It's, it's, I have to have a, I, I say a percentage of my customers are asking me about the cloud. I have to have an answer. And by the way, I think the majority of times... It's a bait and switch, right? Yes. I come in and I talk to you about the cloud, and they say, by the way, you know, if you look at your three- or four-year cost, if you go with the cloud, it's going to cost you this much. If you go with a premises solution from the vendor I'm used to, I can do it for 80% of that, so you save money. And I know you got some cash laying around to buy stuff, so wouldn't you like to save money? And, and, and that goes back to you know, the discussion we started this with on cloud pricing. I mean, everybody has this comment, they say, that, well, cloud is actually – 
more expensive than premises, especially once you get over about 100 users. Um, you know, that means it's really not cloud yet, to my mind. I, I, I don't think we've seen the real cloud models. And I, I would agree. I think that's a very reasonable statement. I do think that the market will, and we did this in, in a different way, but we did this in video conferencing in about 1998, right? right. Everyone was selling things like Pitchertel Concords, as was I, and then Polycom turned up with a view station, and everyone said, well, no one wants to sell that because it's a quarter of the price or 15% of the price, a sixth of the price. No one wants to sell it. So clients won't hear about it. But after you, once it becomes compelling enough, enough clients were here and suddenly the market went from that old Polycom, uh, Pitchertel world to the Polycom world and it just flicked. Right. I suspect, I suspect that what will happen, as you were suggesting earlier, this whole idea of once cloud, sorry, once a cloud solution becomes part of a workflow and once you're adding something more than, you pick up the phone and there's dial tone and, it, and the PBX is now in our cupboard rather than in yours. Once you get beyond that level, then I think that the flick will be very brisk. And those resellers and distribution and even manufacturers better be ready for it because I think it will go pretty quickly. This isn't going to be a, a five-year transition. It might be a no, month one. I think it's a fairly short – It's a fair. there's a fairly short pricing transition that's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen within the next 18 to 18 to 30 months mm. where it's going to start really kicking off. You're going to see, and, and you know, you, you talk about video, it's interesting. So I, you know, again, I worked with a, a web RTC startup and so very recently built application written in node J and, and node JS, uh, you know, all the latest tools, et cetera. So we had this long conversation about how many users can we support? And so, you know, in, in an AWS very large Rackspace 8, one of those servers you can get for about $2,000 a year, looks like today you can support about 20,000 active endpoints. Again, control only, peer-to-peer. -peer. All the traffic is peer-to-peer. -peer. So you're not touching any of the media traffic. You're only touching the control. If you and I are in a video call, I mean, I mean literally, I download, I'm downloading a JavaScript to your browser all the work is being done by the JavaScript in your browser. Once you started the session, all the server is really doing is just making sure that you're keeping alive and you haven't dropped the yep. session. You haven't turned your. So you figure 20,000 today, 18 months, that's going to double to 40,000 because of Moore's Law. Um, assume that the ratio of registered users to active users at any point in time is 10 to 1. So if I can support 20,000 active users, that resource could actually be the support for 200,000 registered users or 400,000, pick your number. That server costs $2,000 a year. So if you go through the math of the cost of service to do video and not video conferencing in the classic, you know, Hollywood squares, but just peer-to-peer -peer video, which is basically what we're doing right now. Which, by the way, is about 80% of all calls according to the providers. Exactly. 80% are peer-to-peer. -peer. If you look at it, it's less than a penny a year. It's less than a penny a year. We're, we're talking about the service cost for this stuff. I mean, if you look at the cost of telephony, the cost of delivering telephony, if you don't touch the PSTN and the telephony calls are peer-to-peer, -peer, very rapidly approaches the same point. The only reason it costs so much today is a lot of the software we've written 
is actually all that old software that's not terribly well well situated going to the cloud. But you well, know, it, it also does a whole bunch of things you don't need anymore. I don't want H three two three transcoding between oh yeah no no exactly nine and AAC LD and all that nonsense. Just, right, those are all the media stuff. Yeah, but even all the media stuff go away, and the cost of the service drops to the floor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think I think you know there's this very interesting question about. You know how this stuff evolves, and I don't think we've really—I don't think we really yet know. I mean, and, and by the way, it's you know, you've got to look at the disruptions of the last. Just think about this—a disruption of the last twenty years—and and think about how this changed. So think about you need to go to an address. How do you figure out the path to that address? If you go back twenty years ago, in 1995, 1996, the vast majority of us had a paper map, sure. and we would use a paper map. You had paper maps. I mean, I remember I had you know, these maps in my car, and I would get a map out, and I'd figure out. So then what happened was then the web came along, and the web introduced the idea that I could get a map on Google. And all of a sudden, I didn't need a paper map because I could print out a map with a direct path on it to where I wanted to go. I didn't have to have that paper map anymore. And that, well, the, I bought that changed the world. Then all of a sudden, along came Garmin and GPSs. And now I could buy this little box that I put in my car, or I could spend a lot of money to my car manufacturer for navigation. I'd had navigation in my car. Now that's an application on my phone. And in fact, I, I can't understand why anybody would spend that extra $2,000 for the navigation system in your car when you can use Waze on your phone instead. And, and so... You know, I think the thing about this industry is this industry has been protected from those kind of transformations. Yeah. Um, you know, voice over IP, and I was very actively involved in voice over IP. You know, I, I remember the days when people said, well, all these things you can do with voice over IP that you can't do with TDM, you know, telephony or old digital phone. You know, the reality is IP phones are used just like, TDM phones. Completely. The, the use case, I mean, they even fake that they've got a dial tone. I mean, it, it's right. exactly the same experience. Exactly. And so, and what's interesting is if you walk into a business today and walk up to somebody at a desk who's got a phone on their desk and ask them, is that phone a digital phone, an analog phone, or an IP phone? I guarantee you that 90% of the people will not have a clue. Oh, 90 and, Maybe 90, 90, I'm just being, I, I bet on, I bet on 90. It's probably 98%. Oh, but, yeah. but my whole point is, but, but the reality is the changes that are coming now yeah. are, and, and part of the problem with telecom is we've lived through these changes, right? We went from analog to digital. We went from digital to voice over IP and kind of everything stayed the same. The business model stayed the same. I, I, the, I, stayed the same. It's all going to change in the next five years. I completely agree. I mean, you talk about, right, Moore's law is about every 18 months or two years. Uh, yep. Moore said two years, and in fact, it's been more like 18 months. 18 months, last. yep. Well, if you do, and, and by the way, I talk about it in the end of certainty in my book, the importance of, of this compute power change. Every 18 months doubling gives you 10 times more every five years. Five and a half. All right, five point something is five point four something yeah. technically. If you want to get pedantic, yep. over a twenty-year span, that means that we've got ten thousand times more compute for the same money. 
Actually, if you say 30, it's even more interesting because 30 or 33 years, it's a million times. A million times, yeah. And, you, you, and, you, you use 20 years in your analogy. So I'm thinking, so how come it looks the same if I've got 10,000 times more power? Well, so That doesn't make sense to me. There's actually, there's actually an interesting thought process, and you brought this up, so I'll talk to it. Um, if you draw a chart, and unfortunately we, we're on a podcast, so I'm going to draw a virtual chart that people can draw <laughs> in their minds. Um, on the horizontal axis, put time. On the vertical axis, put exponential compute power. So then you put a line on that chart that represents Moore's law. So it starts from you know the lower left and goes to the upper right on the chart. If you think about at time zero, time you know at the far left on time, I'm building an application for the first time in the compute world that can be built in computing. My challenge is compute power, um, and the trade-off between software and hardware is the core of computer science. My first computer science professor who's told me, he said, this is, he said this thing for the class, he said, the trade-off between hardware and software is what, is what computer science is all about, the art of computer science. He said, you know, if you're building five of something, you buy all the hardware you can afford to make the software development easy. If you're building a million of something, you optimize the heck out of the software so you can buy cheap hardware. So those are obvious. He says, what do you optimize if you're building five or 10,000 or something? And it's, it's this optimization. So what happens is when you first build it, you're actually optimizing the software because the cost of hardware is so expensive that you want to make sure the software runs very well within economical hardware. So you write code in assembler. You put data directly into the, into the flow process because reading data from a separate register is actually four instruction cycles versus one if it's right in the, in the code stream. Yeah. If you then fast forward, your point, I mean, it's, it's this point nobody in this industry gets till you actually point it out to them. If you go forward that five years or 10 years, if the application you're delivering is not consuming increased compute power at Moore's Law is not growing with Moore's Law, you all of a sudden get that line, that line is a much flatter line and the distance between it and the compute line grows. And what we do is the history of computing is using that power not to do more work, but to abstract the way we do the work. So we go from assembler to compile code. We abstract the data. Then we go to, from, from compile code, we next go to object orientation. Every time you do that, it becomes easier to write the software, but it becomes less efficient. And then we go to interpreted code, where you no longer compile it. The well, yeah, yeah, I agree. But there's also the angle there that you also make it easier for the user. And you may because because you're able to do more things. But I guess my point is, if you if you look at this, the result of this is over time, software gets more modular, testing gets much easier because you're not testing the whole thing. You don't do these six-month regression tests. You're only testing this little module. As long as that module interacts with the rest of the world the same way, a change in the module only will affect everything else the way that module works. Yeah. And, and so the result that's really interesting is that what you find is that software is ripe for rewriting about every seven to ten years. And the challenge we have in telecom is you look at a lot of the products in telecom, their roots are 20 years ago. I mean, you look at products like Avaya's communication manager, um, you know, it has roots back into the 90s. 
Um, you look at products like, you know, even Cisco Call Manager. Um, it goes back into the late 90s, early thousands. Um, you know, and it's interesting, if you talk to Don Brown, the reason Don Brown went to build PureCloud, which was a, I mean, if you think about it, interactive intelligence started in the, in the early aughts. They started at a later point in software development. They used that to be able to build a software suite. But what Don Brown realized was that this new technology that's coming out, this web-based models we've been talking about, the, you know, using Node.js, using JavaScript, it's a profoundly different way of building applications. And he realized if you didn't go to that, he was going to fall behind. So PureCloud was built in that. By the way, this was the battle that happened two years ago in Cisco, right? In Cisco, there was a huge battle about, you know, is the future communications manager or is the future something else? And Spark is something else. I mean, Spark yeah. is. And so, you know, I think what we're seeing is we're beginning to see those transitions happen. And, and I'm going to be really interested to see some of these new products that are developed in this new paradigm that are using, you know, these web tools that are taking advantage of the fact that compute power, it's not free, but the cost of compute power it falls away, though, so fast. Exactly, exactly. And, and the steps we're getting now are, are so big. And a good, another good example, this is fantastic stuff, Phil, but another good example of this is uh, the Cisco Microsoft, uh, sorry, the Cisco Polycom, let's use life size as an example. They all have hardware-based video conferencing endpoints. Yep. And they're... I think we use the word reassuringly expensive in many cases. They're very nice. I mean, I'd love an M800. I wouldn't want to run the air conditioning bill for it. And this thing's a $50,000 behemoth of a thing. And you think, how many clients could actually get away with a Logitech camera running with a PTZ one running with a Nook PC and some nice software in it, and it'd be a $2,000 investment? And more important, even if it's not perfect today, you know in another two years Intel would put the next processor in and another two years. You, you the hardware guys, LifeSize is good, another good example with their Icon series, a fine product when it came out, but it's already falling behind the Intel machines, and it's six times the price. Right. Well, and, and, and then you know, the other thing is if you look at video conferencing, you know, 93%, 94% of conference rooms don't have video today. Sure, sure. And, and, and the guys at Logitech claim it's 50 million meeting rooms a year. Right. Exactly. And this is, you know, and so one of the things I've, I've done a little work with telly, with the telly guys, and yeah. they're doing the same market. It's the huddle room market. When you look at the huddle room market, there's a very interesting perspective here that, you know, if you put a 60-inch display or a 65-inch display in a 10 by 10 huddle room and you put an HD 2K HD video camera system on it, like the Tele Labs or, or like... Yeah, the Tele 200, great device. Or like the Logitech. Anyway, Logitech either, really. The interesting question is, you know, assuming that device has a reasonable software and it can be upgraded, how long will that device last? I mean, very interesting perspective because, you know, I, I have this view on 4K video that 4K video, our eyes are only 2K eyes. So 4K eyes, I mean, it actually turns out it's very interesting. If you look at the cone density in the average human eye, we have about 5 million cones. Um, 
in the core, there are about four to four and a half million cones. And then the cones, the cones are what you actually see in your visual field. The rods are your peripheral vision. There are 100 million rods in your retina. So your retina is actually made up of these two. What's interesting is if you take the area where the cones thin out and the rods start, about four and a half million, four to four and a half million cones. If you put a 1920 by 1080 rectangle in that four million pixel circle, it actually just about exactly fills the circle. It turns out HDTV was picked. The, the dimensions of it were picked based on our eyes resolution. So if yeah. you sit, you know, 1.6 times the diagonal from a HD 2K television, the pixels on the screen match the pixels in your eyes. So, you know, the reason we do 4K in theaters, by the way, is that, that when you sit in the front row of the theater, you only see half the screen. So you have to have 2000 pixels in half the screen. So you have to have 4,000 the whole screen because everybody can't sit in one row in the theater. So, you know, obviously in video conferencing in a big conference room, 4K can be valuable because, you know, if you make the display big enough so the guy at the back of the conference table, is usually the senior guy, can see the picture big enough, the people sitting up close are going to see half the screen, just like in the theater. But if you look at a huddle room, it's a much smaller audience. The, the distances, the variable distance is much lower. So 2K is probably going to be good for a long time. So you're actually buying a solution that probably can last you five years, maybe yeah. even longer. Well, particularly in the case, I would agree entirely, except it depends, right? <laughs> the usual, it depends. It depends because in the case of the Logitech, or in the case of the uh, of the telly, where the telly allows you to upgrade, you know, you can change your software codecs in there if you right. want. They, of course, it's one unit. I mean, it's a nice unit, but it's one unit, so you can't upgrade the codec separately from the camera. You could that's argue true. that at that price, that's irrelevant. But the Logitech, you can. You see, so I would argue that right. you could turn around and say, "Well, I want to run as I do." I have argued this. I want to run Google Hangouts on this call. And I want to run Skype for Business in the next one, and I want to run WebEx in the third. Well, if I'm running a PC in there, then I can do all of that. Right. And if the PC needs to be upgraded to Windows 12 in another three years from now, then I can just chuck the nook away and buy another one, um, which I can't do with the telly. But either of those solutions is still much more flexible than, say, uh, an M700 from Cisco at fifty thousand dollars, or, right. oh, or a high-end Polycom unit, or a you know a life-size endpoint. Life-size endpoint works great with cloud and nothing else. And that goes back to the you know two issues there. It goes back to IT managers are no longer telling everyone what the monolithic answer is. And secondly, you're losing out to the Moore's law argument and the steps that Moore's law is beginning to take are so giant. Right. You can't keep up unless you're on that same thing. And and then lastly, this is the one that really fascinates me, is I have, as you may have guessed, lots of computers, because who doesn't these days, in their house. I have a media room, of course. And in our media room, we have I have a, a seven-year-old laptop. It's a Mac, but it's almost irrelevant, running an early version of the i5 processor in it. I've got a conference cam group on it. And I talk to my mother over Starleaf every Sunday morning, my time. Right. And it's great. And I don't need anything better. So how long will it last? Seven, eight years, probably. I mean, if, if history's any indication, why would I go to more? I don't need to do 4K to talk to my mum from my couch. Exactly. Well, and, and because of the way you're doing it, actually, there's no benefit to 4K there. I mean, but the other thing that's really interesting, I don't know if you've tried this, but 
you know, you basically just get a Comcast or a, um, a, um, a Chromecast, plug it into your display, and now you can throw things from your, your, um, your desktop. It was, it was really interesting. I was working with a company, and we did a conversation, a video call with one of the large manufacturers that manufactures video gear. I won't say who it is. And what we did is we actually had, we actually used my PC, which is a P7 PC, took a USB camera. We had a USB extension cable. We put it on a little tripod up at the front of the room. Yeah. We had a display and we were running that with a, one of the nice little puck microphones. And we did this video call. And at the end of the video call, one of the folks from the, the company said, by the way, what kind of room system are you using? It really looks good. And I mean, it, your point is exactly right is, you know, I, the market of putting those things together, how you put these pieces together. I mean, you know, it's interesting, like the Polycom Trio, I thought was an interesting. Yeah, thing. I like that product. Because the video processing is in the separate module that talks wirelessly to the base. So if you actually want to, and the, the codec function is in that module. So, you know, you can actually take advantage of being able to change that out. Well, do remember, they use a Logitech something C920 camera. The Logitech camera has a 264 encoder built into the right. webcam. Exactly. Um, I, it's the decoder for the HDMI output. That's for, right. For that's right. So in, other words, in other words, what you could do is they could come out with a 4K version of that that you can use with a 4K camera and a 4K through HDMI, <laughs> and you don't change out the table unit. You just change out what's – so I think you're right, this concept of upgradability because – you're going to pay more for upgradability, right? So you've got the, you know, if I buy a 2K camera like Tele, the price point is probably in the $1,000 range, street price. Something like that, um, yeah. 1012 you know, that kind of range. I go to some of these that are modular, like the Polycom Trio, it's probably $1,500 to $2,000 more. By the time I buy the whole system. But what's interesting is that, you know, it's do you trade off buying something now that you'd have to replace Versus buying something modular. And of course, the, the interesting perspective is my kind of experience has been that in these things, modularity doesn't win. The cost of modularity and the cost of adding on to modularity is more than the cost of buying something and throwing it away in four years and buying the next version. Well, you could argue, I think I would, that whether it's the Polycom Trio or the Group Connect from Logitech or the or the Tele 200, they're all disposable items. Yep. I mean, you, you know, three years from now, you knock it off the top of the machine with a hockey stick and you put the new one up. I mean, and you're not going to do that with your with your life-size Room 220 or with your with your M700. One, because you need something bigger than a hockey stick to get it off. But also, it's just a, a, a much more meaty device, but so much less flexible. I think, to me, that's the real interesting bit about this new generation of endpoints that not only are they an order of magnitude less expensive not only can they be upgraded in a more modular way whether people do it or not but they're also just so much more flexible you just walk in the room and go i don't even want to do a video call i just simply want to use google docs well there i am i mean right. they're powerful i mean it sounds ridiculous yeah a pc in a meeting room who'd have thumped it actually it hasn't worked for 20 years, mainly because Windows has been such a beast. They, oh, look, I've got a blue screen of death in the meeting room. Uh, I don't think that's true anymore. I think it, we've got past that. Well, and, and, the meeting, and the interesting thing is you brought up there's the meeting room as a peripheral. 